pull that up. So this is from a recorded talk. So today is the Wan Pra, the Lunar Observance Day. We have come here to make merit, to do goodness through acts of generosity and upholding uh, the practice of virtue, of morality. And this Lunar Observance Day we call the Uposita Day. And on the Uposita Day we practice the Uposita Sila, the virtue of the Uposita Day. And this uh, Uposita Sila is something that has been in existence since the time of the Buddha. The Buddha taught that lay disciples should uphold the Uposita Sila, which is a Sila that's uh, something that's very important. And it's more than the usual Sila that uh, lay disciples keep. Because what's uh, usual is for disciples with faith in the Buddha Sasana, the Buddhist religion, to uphold the five precepts. For instance, the great disciples, Anattapindika, a foremost male lay supporter of the, the Buddhist religion, and Lady Wisaka, the foremost female lay supporter of the Buddhist religion. These were two uh, great disciples of the Buddha. And for instance, they upheld the five precepts uh, as a normal part of their life. And on the Oposita Observance Day, for instance, they up, would uphold the eight precepts. So we can look at the example of Anattapindika, for instance. He'd uphold the five precepts every day. And on the Lunar Observance Days, the Oposita Days, he'd take on the eight precepts. And this isn't just Anattapindika that would do this, but all the villagers that were uh, living around him would also do the eight precepts on the lunar observance days, all the way down to the, the lowest uh, level of worker would uphold the eight precepts. Even a child that was uh, just born would uphold the eight precepts as well on the lunar days. And so this is what we'd call a high level of faith or belief in the teachings of the Buddha. And this is for one who sees the benefit of virtue, the benefit of the practice of sila. And to one sees the value, the usefulness of taking on the five precepts or the eight precepts. Because one has the five precepts and every single day as, as a, just a normal practice for one's life. And even upholding the five precepts, it's still possible for one to be lost in the things of the world. So upholding the eight precepts can help cut off the moods and impressions of the world. It can help a lot. For instance, not taking food in the afternoon or the evening, not taking food after uh, 12 noon, or not adorning one's body with cosmetics or garlands or scents. Or if one does use cosmetics and garlands and scents, one tends to build up an attachment uh, to the beauty of the body so refraining from this behavior, one sees that the body is something that's uh, not beautiful, not attractive. It makes it easier to contemplate the body, to see the truth of the body, because these minds of ours have been lost for a long time in believing the body as self, believing that it's beautiful.
So we can see how the eight precepts are better than the five precepts in this way. And we can see that the last precept of not going to shows, this helps one not to be lost in the, this entertainment, not going out to entertainment. Because if one does go out to entertainment, one can forget about old age, forget about sickness, uh, forget about death. So one refrains from this behavior. So in the days of the week, one takes on the five precepts as a normal habit for oneself. And then out of those seven days, one can take on the eight precepts just for one day. And we use this opportunity to contemplate the Dhamma that the Buddha taught, that the Buddha awakened to and knew well, knew thoroughly. And the opportunity for the Buddha to self-awaken, it's something that's incredibly difficult to come by. It's not easy at all. So having been born as humans, we're humans who have bodies and minds that are at the human level, and we've met with the teachings of the Buddha. And in Thailand here, we have seen that the Dhamma has spread all the way to Thailand by virtue of the disciples of the Buddha. And this was actually a, a lay disciple of the Buddha that helped Buddhism to spread to Thailand, namely uh, King Asoka, who sent Dhamma messengers in all directions. And these Dhamma messengers made it all the way to Sawanapum, to Thailand, uh, to bring the Buddha's teachings from India all the way to here. And it was uh, two monks who brought the teachings to Thailand to spread the Dhamma to Thailand. And this is an important historical occasion to remember. And we can see that when Buddhism declined in India, then Buddhism uh, prospered and flourished in Thailand. So therefore the Thai people having been born, then they have the chance to know the Buddhist teachings and the opportunity to practice following them. And this has been the case of uh, disciples since the time of the Buddha. And we can look at the Dhamma that Anattapindika uh, practiced. We can say it's the Dhamma of a, of a wealthy person because he was one with great material wealth. But he had the wisdom to see that this material wealth is just an outer thing. For instance, when he bought land to offer to the Buddha, it was the land of Prince uh, Jeta, and he covered all the land with gold pieces. And he named the monastery uh, Jetawana uh, Mahavihara. So he named it after the prince who he bought it from. So we can see that Anattapindika was one who had no sense of self in his doing, in his practice of generosity. He just had sacrifice and giving. He sacrificed so much material wealth to buy this land, but he didn't need his name attached to it. What he just needed is the Dhamma. He just needed a place for the Buddha and his disciples to come stay so that they could come teach the people the Dhamma, teach the people in that area. So we can contemplate this Dhamma of a wealthy person. We can see that he was all, he had everything he needed. He had all the, the wealth, uh, had many types of wealth and a great amount of wealth. 
But you can see that this wealth is something of no great value. It's something that's not very important. Something that is of great importance is having self-sacrifice, having giving. And one uses one's material wealth to do things that are useful and valuable and to increase the value of that wealth by, by giving. For instance, Anattapindika would set up alms distribution halls to give to the poor, the hungry, and the needy. And anyone could come and eat uh, for free. There was no cost at all. They would just be given food. So Anattapindika did this. And the people gave him the name Anattapindika. This was a name given by society. The meaning of the name is one who is a refuge uh, to the poor and the needy. So he was one who was very wealthy and who helped society, did a great amount of merit and goodness. So he was a wealthy person with great inner uh, virtues. There was a case where all his money was used up. He had given it all away. And he offered some, what was considered low-quality rice gruel and some kind of low-quality drink to the sangha, to the monastic sangha. And we can see in this story, this is the merit he was making in his present lifetime. And what happened at this point was that a great amount of wealth uh, came to him through various means, and he was actually even wealthier than before. And this is from the merit he made just in that lifetime, in his present lifetime. So that we can see this is the benefit of all the merit he did. And we can also see that when his money ran out, he didn't give up in his practice of generosity, nor in his practice of virtue of sila. Because we see he was a stream enterer, a sotapanna, one with firm, well-established faith in the Buddha, the Dhamma, and the Sangha, faith which is beyond degradation. His mind had entered the stream of the Dhamma. He had seen the Dhamma already. He had seen the truth that the Buddha taught. That all the things in the world, all that we have, all that we need, all that we want, are all impermanent. They're all unstable. In the end, they all must pass away and degrade and see that all these things, no matter what it is, all the things of the world, they don't last at all. And the life of individuals also do not last. And when one, when one dies, one cannot take anything of the world with oneself. One leaves all the things of the world behind. There's not a single person capable of taking the things of the world with them when they die. So if one is intelligent, then one uses one's material wealth that one has while one is alive to do acts of goodness, to do acts of merit, to offer and do acts of generosity. And one uses one's body when one is still alive to do merit as well through the practice of sila, morality. We see that this undertaking of the five precepts, the practice of the five precepts, is something of great value. We take care of our behavior of body and speech to be within the bounds of sila. And we see that the benefit of sila is greater than the benefits of generosity. 
because many individuals are capable of doing generosity and even practice generosity regularly. But oftentimes people find taking on the five precepts is something very difficult. And why is this? It's because if someone harms us, the tendency is want to want to harm them back. If one speaks harshly to us, we speak harshly back. If one is angry with us, then we get angry back. So we find ourselves incapable of following the five precepts. Or if someone has a mind with a lot of greed, they find doing the five precepts difficult. Or if one is deluded in the sense of self to a high degree, then they have trouble with the five precepts. They have the impulse to harm and hurt and kill. For instance, if one has someone that one loves very dearly, and then that love becomes uh, cut off or lost somehow, then people are capable of harming or even killing the person that they loved. And why is this? It's because of this greed, aversion, and delusion embedded in the heart. They cover over the heart, uh, bring darkness to the heart. So we can see that the dhamma of a wealthy person, like Anattapindika, is to keep the five precepts as a normal practice to help society and to help the, the Buddhist religion. So on the Uposita days, the lunar days, we practice the eight precepts, just like Anattapindika and Lady Visaka. And we see that these two great disciples of the Buddha were individuals of great importance in the Buddhist religion. And they practiced the Dhamma of wealthy people. And they had Dhamma arise in their hearts as well. They both saw all materiality and mentality as impermanent, something unstable that can't last. Therefore, they practiced not to cling to these outer things but they just wanted to do generosity, to make merit, to do that which is useful, seeing that the things of this world are unstable. And we see that Anattapindika is a refuge for the impoverished. And even if we ourselves don't have much material wealth, we can still, or we help according to our ability, according to our strength, and we don't harm ourselves and don't trouble ourselves in the process. And the practice of sila is something that we can do without using any money at all. Just keeping our body, bodily behavior and verbal behavior within the bounds of sila. And the benefits of upholding sila are great. It brings us great happiness, brings a cool shade to our hearts, and is a cause, a foundation for the arising of collectedness in the heart. So therefore we practice sila thoroughly, we practice it well, and we develop our minds even higher. And how do we develop our minds higher? It's through the practice of meditation, the practice of samadhi, of concentration or collectedness. And we see that this samadhi is the firm establishment of the mind. And there are two types, wrong samadhi and right samadhi. Wrong samadhi is also a firmly established mind, but it's the mind that's firmly established in order to accomplish things that are outside of the Noble Eightfold Path. 
And we see that the absorption states, the jhanas, are able to control the kilesas, the defilements of mind, and to subdue the hindrances of sense desire, ill will, sloth and torpor, uh, worry and restlessness, and skeptical doubt. And these five hindrances are that which cover over the heart to make it so that the heart cannot attain samadhi, cannot realize wholesomeness and goodness. And the, the mind with no samadhi is the mind that thinks uh, distractedly, thinks about the past, about the future, gets lost in various proliferation, is not in the present. So we may have liking, we may have disliking, we may be sleepy, we may be agitated, we may have doubt. These are the five hindrances. They cover over the mind, make the mind not peaceful, not able to realize goodness and samadhi. So given that these five hindrances prevent the mind from realizing samadhi, what should we do? We should try to practice and keep meditating, keep practicing to bring the mind to collectedness. And we do this by recollecting our meditation object. If one is a greedy of a greedy character, that tends to have more uh, sense desire, a hindrance, then one can contemplate the body as a suba, something not beautiful. And this can give rise to peacefulness and samadhi. If one tends to get angry, then one should cultivate loving kindness, contemplate that all beings having been born all meet with old age, sickness, and death. They meet with only suffering, and no one realizes true happiness. And yet all beings want true happiness. So therefore we feel this loving kindness, we cultivate loving kindness as our mental cultivation. This is something that we know in our hearts for ourselves. When we meditate like this, our minds feel at ease, feel peaceful. That anger doesn't arise, greed doesn't arise, distracted thinking doesn't arise. Our mind is just with Bhutto. And then at this point, we don't have doubts. We realize this is the path to firm establishment of mind, to samadhi. This is the cultivation of the mind, that the practice of bhavana. And when the mind is collected, the five hindrances do not arise. This is the mind with its meditation object that can control and subdue the five hindrances. The mind that's peaceful, uh, still, and collected. This is the mind in a wholesome, meritorious state uh, with a skillful mind object. In the time of the Buddha, there are a lot of people who practice samadhi, who practice the states of absorption, the jhanas. And there are the rupa jhanas, the form jhanas, and the arupa jhanas, the formless jhanas. And there are many types, the first, second, third, fourth uh, rupa jhanas, and then the jhanas of the attainment of uh, infinite space, infinite consciousness, nothingness, and then neither perception nor non-perception. And these are meditative attainments that are very subtle and very deep. And the Buddha studied these absorption states with two prominent ascetics of his time, named Alara and Utaka. 
and he realized the states of the attainment of nothingness and the attainment of neither perception nor non-perception with these two teachers. This was something that the Buddha did practice samadhi before he awakened to the truth as a Buddha. So he practiced jhana when he was still a bodhisattva seeking the truth. And we see in India at this time, many individuals were studying, seeking a way out of suffering. They were making effort and contemplating how to, how to escape suffering. And there were many methods that people used to do this. And many people thought that this practice of jhana was the way to uh, true happiness. And we can see even in the present that there are many people who contemplate in the same way. Uh, they try to think of what is the way to true happiness. There are many teachers that study about this and teach about this even up till the present time. So we see that this samadhi, the state of collectedness, when one realizes samadhi, the five hindrances are absent, and one feels a very high degree of happiness at this point. This is the mind that is uh, blissful and happy, but it's still a worldly samadhi. In the kilesas, the defilements are controlled and subdued, and they can be controlled for a long time. And we may feel at that time that we have no kilesas at all. But when the samadhi degrades, then the kilesas arise again. It's just like putting a rock on top of grass. When the rock is on top of the grass, the grass doesn't grow. It's subdued. But the roots are still there. So as soon as you take the rock away, the grass grows again. It's just like that with the mind. The roots of ignorance of the kilesas are still there in the mind. So even if one subdues it with samadhi, when the samadhi degrades, the kilesas come right back. So many meditators and ascetics in the past uh, practice these absorption states, such as the ascetics Alara and Utaka that the Buddha studied with. And the Buddha attained to the fourth jhana up to the eighth jhana uh, very quickly. He was very adept. And his teacher, the ascetic, seeing that the Buddha, at that time the Bodhisattva, attained to jhana so quickly and attained to the same attainment that he himself had attained to, invited the Bodhisattva to be his equal, to be his fellow teacher of their group of students. But the Buddha realized that it's just conditioned samadhi, a conditioned phenomena. The five hindrances were absent and kilesas weren't arising. However, the Bodhisattva realized when the samadhi degraded, the Bodhisattva would think again to his wife Yasodhara and his child Rahula. He would think of them once again. Therefore, the Bodhisattva realized that this was not the way to the truth, not the way to true freedom from suffering. So therefore, after studying with these ascetics, he went to go practice the way of a self-mortification, torturing the body. And after that, he practiced the anapanasati, the mindfulness of breathing. And the Buddha tortured his body to a very high degree in the forest and in a cave. And even though he tortured his body to the highest degree, he still did not awaken to the truth. 
So therefore he went to practice the mindfulness of breathing. He brought his mind to peace, to samadhi. And we can say in the present we practice with bhutto as well, with our breath. And so we can think that when we bring our minds to samadhi with the breath, then we're practicing the same method as the bodhisattva when he practiced to realize full awakening as a samasambuddha. So the Buddha was awakened with a mind collected and at peace. And when his mind was thus collected and at peace, he went to contemplate the Dhamma, went to contemplate cause and effect. And his contemplation was deep and profound to the level of removing the kilesas from his heart. In the first watch of the night, he recollected his uh, past lives throughout uh, many past ages. In the second watch, he had the knowledge of the arising and passing away of beings according to their karma. And then the third watch, he had the knowledge of the destruction of the kilesas, the destruction of that which binds the mind to suffering. And this is the realization of uh, true freedom. This is the true self-awakening of the fully self-awakened Buddha. So at this point, this was the arising of a fully self-awakened one in the world. And after this point, the Buddha taught the Noble Eightfold Path to the multitudes, which is the path of sila, samadhi, and panya. So therefore, for ourselves, we come to this lunar observance day. We practice the eight precepts, and we uphold the five precepts on other days. And for novices, they do the ten precepts. And for monks, they practice the 227 precepts. And the sila is bringing our bodies and speech to make our bodies and speech uh, proper and restrained within sila. So whether one's a lay person, a novice, or a, a fully ordained monastic, we practice sila to these various degrees, these various levels, according to the faith of individuals. We practice samadhi, uh, and the sila is the foundation for samadhi to arise. So we restrain our bodies and speech in sila, and then this can give rise to samadhi in the heart. It's the foundation for samadhi. And we can see that for all people, uh, samadhi, it's the same. Whether one's a lay person, a novice, or a fully ordained monastic, the mind in samadhi is the mind in samadhi. It doesn't differ based on one's outer status. Whether one's a male or a female, the mind that's collected in samadhi is the same. And this samadhi, this uh, stillness, the mind that's still, there's no male or female there. One doesn't feel that one's a male or a female. It's just the mind that's still and peaceful in samadhi. There may be some female lay followers who wish to be reborn as a male in the next life. But one doesn't have to wait for a next life. One simply brings one's mind to peace and collectedness in the present life. And then at that point, there's no male or female being experienced. One is like a Brahma deity. And the same for males, when they practice samadhi, their minds become like a Brahma god. And this is the mind in collectedness. 
but it still has some suffering there. So we can see that this practice of samadhi is very important. We bring the mind to samadhi, and at this point the mind is firm and stable to a degree. And we use this samadhi to contemplate the body. Sometimes we may see the body simply as a pile of bones or a pile of flesh. We have mindfulness with the body and see that the body just degrades and passes away, degrades into a pile of bones, a pile of flesh. And contemplating like this can bring the mind to cut off liking for the body, to cut off disliking. And one can think, oh, why am I angry? Why am I jealous? Why am I greedy? Why am I aversive? And so on. Because the body is just a pile of bones, a pile of flesh. It must degrade and pass away, for sure. And these, when we practice like this, then greed, aversion, and delusion degrade and are cut off bit by bit. This is the mind coming closer to Nibbana, realizing Nibbana uh, step by step. So when we practice and train the mind like this, this gives rise to wisdom. This is the path of Siva, Samadhi, and Panya. So whatever posture we're in, whether sitting, standing, walking, or lying down, whether we're at work, and uh, when we're at work, we may not have a lot of time to walk meditation or sit meditation. But whatever one's doing, even when one is at work, one can have mindfulness with all of one's bodily postures. And this practice of mindfulness is something that one must do. And one keeps a watch over the mind. This is the foundation of mindfulness, of uh, being mindful of the mind, jitanupasana. So one watches the mind with mindfulness and one asks, well, how is the mind in this moment? Is the mind greedy? Is it aversive? Is it lost? Is it deluded? Are these states present? So keep a watch over the mind. Control one's body and speech to be within the bounds of the five precepts or the eight precepts. Have mindfulness with this. And this gives the mind the foundation for the arising of samadhi. So we sit and walk meditation when we have the occasion, we generate mindfulness like this as well. But whatever posture we're in, sitting, standing, walking, lying down, we practice Dhamma right there. We practice our Bhavana right there. And when we're eating, we can try not speaking. For instance, if some people are practicing the eight precepts, they should eat with in quietude, not speaking so much or not speaking at all. And they can count the number of spoonfuls that go into their mouth and have mindfulness with chewing and swallowing, mindfulness with drinking. And when we're walking or moving our body to and fro, we know that that's what we're doing. We have mindfulness with the movements of the body. And when we speak, we know what we're speaking. We have mindfulness in this way. And all of this is considered Dhamma practice. It's not just sitting meditation and walking meditation. And we can also chant as Dhamma practice as well. If we like chanting, we do it a lot. We recollect the Buddha, the Dhamma, and the Sangha. Buddha Nusati, Dhamma Nusati, and Sangha Nusati. We practice the Dhamma in this way. We have effort with this a lot. And we recite the praises of the Buddha and Dhamma Sangha. And so we keep having... Uh, effort in this. 
in our chanting practice. And when we do this, it's able to cut off distracted thinking in the mind. Then the mind can become uh, joyful and happy with the chanting. The mind is not tired or bored with the chanting. And we do our best with the chanting. We really put our effort into it. So this is another way of Dhamma practice that we can do. It's considered uh, bhavana. And this is, part of, this is a way of practice that's part of the Noble Eightfold Path if we practice with understanding of what the Buddha taught. And it can bring our minds to samadhi, which is very important. The samadhi which controls the kilesa to bring our mind to emptiness. And whether it's a jhana level samadhi or a rupa jhana, they control the kilesas, but it's not yet nibbana. If we cling to the happiness and freedom of samadhi as nibbana, then this is a just another type of obstacle, uh, upa kilesa, that covers over the heart and makes it so that the heart doesn't understand the truth of reality. But if we understand clearly, then this is uh, practicing vipassana, clear seeing. This is seeing all materiality and mentality as impermanent, stressful, and not self. And if we see clearly like this, then this samadhi is not an obstacle then for our vipassana practice. We practice vipassana, and this vipassana practice is the practice of having impermanent stress and not self as the mental object. So when the mind is looking at impermanence, stress, and not self, then this is the mind practicing vipassana. We practice vipassana and shamatha, or tranquility. We do them together. If we don't have shamatha, then our vipassana won't be clear. And if we have true vipassana, then shamatha will be there as well. It's not that we say, oh, I'm a vipassana practitioner, and I'm better than a shamatha practitioner, or, oh, I'm a shamatha practitioner, I'm better than a vipassana practitioner. It's not like that. One who practices one practices the other. One uses both. Lumpu Cha used the example of a knife. When one picks up the knife, the blade and the handle go together. You don't separate them out. So they go together like this. Samadhi and wisdom uh, go together like this. And when the mind is truly gathered and ready to see clearly, sila, samadhi, and panya are just right there in the heart. They're all there together. And this allows one to see clearly into the Dhamma. Just like Anattapindaka, who had firm faith in the Buddha. Normally Anattapindaka lived in the city of Sawati, but on one occasion he went to visit relative in uh, Rajagaha. And when he went on this visit, he heard the name uh, Buddha, heard the name of the Buddha. And when he heard the, the, the word Buddha, great joy and rapture arose in his heart. And this is because he had built a lot of faith in the past. He had already been the great foremost male lay supporter of three Buddhas already in the past in this particular eon. And our Buddha, Gotama Buddha, is the fourth Buddha that he was the foremost uh, male lay supporter of. 
and he still has yet to attain final Nibbana because Anattapindika is waiting for Maitreya Bodhisattva to realize Buddhahood so that in Maitreya Buddha's dispensation, he can once again be the foremost male lay supporter of a Buddha for the fifth time. And Anattapindika and Lady Visaka are the same in this way. So we practice the five precepts and the eight precepts on the lunar days. We practice following the example of Anattapindika and Lady Visaka. We practice uh, sila and samadhi. And we do this, which is the foundation for wisdom to arise, which can have the power to dispel all our doubts about the teachings of the Buddha. So when we practice, we are seeking to know what the Buddha knows. And we have such a great respect for the Buddha, Dhamma, Sangha. And even if we haven't yet seen the truth that the Buddha saw, we still pay homage and we still practice following the example of the great disciples. We practice following the example of the great disciples. We practice the five precepts. And sometimes we may uh, break our precepts, and this is normal, but we do our best. We keep practicing. We see the drawbacks in the endless cycle of birth and death. We see all phenomena as impermanent. We see that when one dies, one is incapable of taking anything with oneself. And so we practice to give rise to true value in our life. We share our wealth so that its usefulness is not wasted. And we see that lacking sila simply is a state of chaos and agitation. We see that when there's uh, no sila, individuals with no sila, all they have is trouble and chaos in their lives. So therefore we practice the five precepts or the eight precepts on the lunar days. And we do our Dhamma practice. If our mind is chaotic with greed, aversion, and delusion, with anger, jealousy, uh, irritation, ignorance, and so on, then we keep trying to practice meditation to bring our minds to samadhi, to give rise to samadhi in our hearts so that we're able to contemplate effectively to cut off the defilements in the heart. We contemplate materiality and mentality as anicca, dukkha, anatta, and this is a contemplation capable of cutting off the first three fetters which bind us to the world of suffering, the three fetters of a personality view, attachment to rites and rituals, and skeptical doubt. This is called seeing the Dhamma, just like Anattapindaka, whose faith is firmly established in the Buddha Sasana, firmly established in his heart, a faith that is stable and unwavering. So may we recollect the Buddha Dhamma Sangha, may we recollect Anattapindika and Lady Visaka, these two great disciples, we can recollect them often and practice following their example. We have faith that's uh, very firm, that doesn't waver, and this gives rise to the brightness, the radiance of Dhamma in our hearts. So today's Lunar Observance Day, as we come together to practice the Dhamma, and what I've spoken uh, thus far, this is the Dhamma, the teachings of the Lord Buddha. So may you contemplate these teachings. 
May you be firm in your practice of generosity, virtue, and meditation. May you practice the Noble Eightfold Path in your heart in order that you may see the Dhamma clearly and cut off the defilements. And we use this faith as our vehicle. So may you all, may you all uh, see the Dhamma.